0: Thank you guys for joining us at my church, Woodside Community Church. I'm honored to be, not my church, but one of you now, officially, Um, so I'm excited about that. Ask me if I start to preach if I can put it down. What what happens? if I start to preach. I'm mad into it, but it's good. Glad we're here. So, we're back in the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 7 through 30. We've got a long one uh, to get through this morning, Mark 6, verses 7 through 30. Mark, he, he's doing it again this morning. Uh, we've seen this a number of times. We're going we're gonna to see two seemingly unrelated stories that seem to have nothing to do with each other, that uh, he very clearly ties together. Uh, we've got this very nice kind of warm, happy, fuzzy kind of Christian story about Jesus sitting on the 12 on a mission, and then we can learn about how we are called to be a part of God's mission. It just sounds really fun and nice and happy, but then all of a sudden, Mark just kind of Flips over those story straight out of a daytime soap. Right? If you know anything about the story of Herod and John the Baptist, um, this story is marked by the two binary things that sell in Hollywood today: sex and violence. Right? King Herod marries his brother's wife. His stepdaughter comes and does some sort of erotic dance for him, and then, for payment for that dance, she asks that John the Baptist get his head cut off. And which which does. Now, that's not a very kid-friendly story, all right? but, but here it is, sandwiched in between this to this mission and the wonderful, miraculous meeting of the 5,000 that everyone loves. What in the world is this story doing here in our text? Right? So we're, we're going to see this again. Mark starts there, telling the mission of the 12, that story, and all of a sudden, he just stops telling that story. He pauses, tells the story of Herod and John the Baptist, and then, in verse 30, again, he comes back and wraps up the story of the apostles. So we've talked about this. This is is Mark's sandwiching technique, right? He takes two seemingly unrelated stories, starts one, interrupts it with the second, and then comes back and finishes the first story, right? When he does this, we've got to remember, when Mark does this, he's explicitly tying these two stories together, right, to make a completely new point. So what in the world do these two stories have to do with each other? We have a call to mission in our first story. Then we have one of the greatest missionaries ever, uh, the prophet John the Baptist, being killed for his mission and his message. All right, so Mark here is explicitly linking mission and martyrdom. Right? Mark wants to make it very clear um, that whenever there is a call, there is also a cost. We have the call to mission in the first story and the cost. Of mission in the second story. The call of discipleship in the first story and the cost of discipleship in the second. Mark wants us to to understand you cannot have one without the other. Christianity isn't necessarily supposed to be this kind of nice, happy, middle class, comfortable, easy lifestyle. This is serious business. This is not a game that we can play at on. This, this is a mission that we are called to, and it's a mission that may just cost us our lives. So we're going to read the story, run through kind of the story, and then we'll draw some conclusions and applications from it. So look here in your Bibles at Mark 6, verses 7 through 30. You can just follow along um, as I read. This is God's Word. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean. here. He charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from them. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, you shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed. Them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why his miraculous powers were at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah.
1: And others said, he
0: is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sinned and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had (laughs) done and taught. Let's pray for we young Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, for singing crazy stories like this. If there's even truth in these stories about you and your plan of salvation and your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, right now, I pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts on your word and what you want us to learn from this, Father. But I pray that we would always learn um, for the purpose of, of worship. Father, that we would know more about you. We would understand what it is that you are doing so we can better praise you and obey you and follow you. Father, right now we just ask the your Spirit to come and work in this place. Father, work on our hearts um, and fall for all through Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first story, nice, easy story. Don't really worry about it too much. We got the mission of the twelve there in verses seven through thirteen. Jesus calls the twelve together, and then He begins to send them out in pairs. And His directions to them there in verses eight and nine are kind of strange, right? Don't take any food, more money, more bags, more extra clothes. Just just go. Can you imagine doing a mission trip like this today? Have you ever gone on like a little short-term mission trip or anything like that? The the few that I've done have been like extremely planned and detailed-oriented. Like you go like ten times before the trip to these meetings, and they give you like a whole long list of what you're supposed to pack. They tell you exactly how much money you're supposed to bring. They've got it all figured out and planned out and everyone is super prepared. But, not the case with the Apostle Care. Just take off and go, Jesus says. But why? Are we doing something wrong uh, with how we do missions? Are we just not trusting God enough? Is all of the, the planning and the support raising that, that modern day missionaries and church planters do, is that is that wrong? Well, I, I don't think it is because this story is not kind of Jesus giving us like details about how to do all missions at all times in general. But he is specifically telling the twelve just what they are to do on this one mission. And notice the four things, the only four things that they're supposed to take there in this verses. All right, they can take a staff, they can still wear their belt, and they can wear a pair of sandals, and they can take just one, two. But what's strange is that those are the exact four things that God commands the Israelites to have with them in Exodus 11 12, or 12 11, right before the Passover. Remember, they're, they're taking the Passover meal, and God says, have these four things and be ready, because when it's time to go, it's time to go. I want you guys to be ready to leave in haste. And it is also noteworthy that we have 12 men going out here. Alright, and if you read the New Testament, it becomes clear that these 12 men represent the new Israel, the, the 12 tribes of Israel in the New Testament. So, so something as big as the Exodus is happening here. God is now, once again, through his apostles, he is calling out and creating his special people. And he's doing it um, starting here at this mission. And they, he just wants them to be free from all these encumbrances and things that may slow them down so that they would be free to better serve God. All right, so this one short little mission it's kind of a preparation for their coming, extended, lifelong mission. This is a unique, one-time thing. Later, we see them in the Bible, preparing differently, traveling differently, taking all these other things with them. All right? this, is, this is kind of this one urgent mission go down, because Jesus wants them to learn on this first mission, that listen, you have to be completely reliant and dependent on me for any success you are going to have in the mission. So he says, don't take any stuff. And go. And by the way, just look at verse eleven really quickly, because this is this is worth noting. Um, if, if you're following along in your King James Bible, you're going to notice that your verse eleven is extremely different than my verse eleven. At the end of your verse eleven, it says, "Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city." Right, the ESV that I read just doesn't have that part of the verse at all. Why? This is worth noticing because what's the difference? Who's got it wrong? Who's got it right? Remember that God's word, that the, the, um, the King James version was translated in 1611. All right, over 400 years ago, and when they translated it, they had very few Greek manuscripts. They had about five. All right, so Bible, New Testament, originally written in Greek. right so when we translated it into English, we take it from the Greek and we translate it into the New Testament. But when they did the King James. 400 years ago, they had just a few manuscripts, and some of those manuscripts were over 1,200 years old, which means they were very late. Right? They weren't close in time to the original writings. Okay, But over the last 400 years of time, we've discovered all these other Greek manuscripts. We found thousands of them, and now we have tons of them that go all the way back really extremely close to the original Greek manuscripts. Right? And the closer you get, the more accurate you're going to get. Right? And so what happens is that this part of the verse here in verse 11, it just doesn't show up in any of the early Greek manuscripts. It's just not there. All of a sudden, hundreds of years later, it just kind of starts appearing and pops into some of the older texts because someone must have just added it. Right? So that's why it's not included in the more recent translations Because it's just not in the original Greek So we want to make sure that kind of what we're reading and studying Is, is as close to the originals and accurate as possible right? So that's just kind of the difference of why that's there It doesn't make one translation something you can't trust just, There's just a few minor differences here and there that, that are worth knowing about Alright, so move on there to verse 12 and 13 And notice what it is that the apostles are doing They're doing three things they're proclaiming, they're casting out demons, and they are healing.
1: And as you've seen, these are
0: the three main things that characterize Jesus' mission. He teaches, he heals, and he casts out demons. So the apostles are doing exactly what their leader was doing. But as we start to kind of continue to read this book, as we start to study Jesus' ministry, it quickly becomes clear that one of these things was primary, and the other two was secondary. One is primary; the other two kind of serve to support the other. Jesus was always, first and foremost, a teacher. He was a a preacher. He was not, by trade, at first, a miracle worker. As we have seen, the miracles are never the point when it comes to Jesus. He never just did a miracle and said, hey, check that out. Look look what I can do, guys. This miracle, this is pretty cool. No, for, for Jesus and the Apostles, the miracles always serve the message. All right? The miracles serve the message. The message is always the point and the focus. Right? When, when these guys perform miracles, it was always for the purpose of confirming the message. Right, we saw this back in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is teaching there in the synagogue the is one-of-a-kind authority. People are amazed. He forgives the sin of his paralytic. The people are amazed. And it is only at that point, then, that Jesus performs the miracle of healing the man. Right? Because the healing confirms the authority and the message and his power to forgive sins. It's is never about the miracles in the Bible. It is always about the person and the message that the miracles point to The miracles just make no sense without the message. And that's why much of what is called the kind of modern-day charismatic movement, you know, people like speaking in tongues and all these cool signs and prophecies and all this crazy stuff, much of that is is frustrating because what they do is they minimize the message and they elevate the miracle. They're minimizing the message and elevating the miracle. They're so obsessed with these cool, wild, kind of elaborate miracles that they often miss the point of the text you'll sometimes in these churches find a very light message that's very weak on the truth of the gospel and God's salvation in Jesus Christ because they've missed the main thing We're, we're simply never told to seek after signs and miracles we're told to seek after a person Jesus Christ he's the point and he saves us we're told in the Bible through his word right not through his miracles The miracles only serve to confirm and to testify to the truth of the message. So so don't let yourself kind of get all caught up in this kind of unbiblical obsession with kind of miracles and signs and all these things. Focus on the message. God's word is amazing enough, right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone is miraculous enough. So so that's the mission. He sends the twelve out. But then just out of nowhere... Mark just kind of completely changes direction and starts telling this really different and really wild story. Right, we're told there in verse 14 at the beginning of the story that King Herod has all of a sudden caught wind of Jesus and his rising popularity. Right, pause there for a second because this can be confusing. Uh, Thirty years earlier, right, Jesus is born, right, back in Mark chapter 2. Right, we read in Mark chapter 2 that King Herod hears about the birth of this baby who's going to be the king of the Jews. Well, as the current king of the Jews, he's kind of bothered by this. He's like, all right, to take care of this. Um, so the, the, the wise men come to Herod. He's like, hey, finally come back and tell me where this baby is so I can kind of go off and worship him or something, he says. Um, the wise men figure out what he's trying to do. And then, so they go back. They don't come back to Herod. So you kind of as precautionary measure. He has like every little baby boy at the age of two in Bethlehem too, right? He's trying to make sure this other kind of up-and-coming king doesn't live, right? That is King Herod. That is a different King Herod than we have here in our story this morning, right? That King Herod, when Jesus is born, is Herod the Great, right? He's kind of the father—not kind of—he is the father of the Herod that we have in our story this morning, who is called Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is our Herod. is a different Herod. Right? King Herod the Great, the first Herod, he dies in 4 BC. Right? He was like the last real king of Israel. When he dies, they take his empire, his country, and they cut it into four pieces. Right? And they give one of each of the pieces to each of his four sons. Right? And so our Herod in this story, Herod Antipas, is the Tetrarch, which just means ruler of four. He's ruler of one of the four pieces. He's the Tetrarch of Galilee. Remember, Galilee is where Jesus has been teaching and healing and doing all of these things. And so now this king Herod, Herod Antipas, is starting to get wind of Jesus. And remember, people at this point are just confused still about who Jesus is. Right? They're always kind of arguing and trying to figure it out. The apostles don't even quite realize who Jesus is. That's why it's so amazing these he sends them out on a mission, like the way. They still don't even get it and he sends them out. That's that's encouraging to me and other people who feel ill-equipped to go out into the world and preach the gospel. God, Jesus sends the apostles when they don't even completely understand who he is because it is God working through his people. God is the one who who works and provides the fruit and the growth. And he's the one that does the work. So they don't even understand who he is. is. The demons did it, but the people don't. And here the people are trying to argue, like, well, you know, who is this guy? Like, well, maybe he was uh, Elijah. Uh, maybe he's just kind of one of those prophets of oh, old. But Herod knows. Herod's got this guilty conscience that we're about to learn. Herod knows what's going on. He says, I know from this. Is. He says, this must be John the Baptist who he, might be headed, who he has come back from the dead. So Mark pauses there to then tell the story back ahead in verses 17 through 29. So Herod has seized and arrested this great prophet John. And we're told that he did it for the sake of his wife, Herodias All right now here's where the soap opera begins right, here's where it gets really crazy All right Herodias was originally the wife of his brother Philip All right John had been kind of calling out and saying that what he had done in marrying his brother's wife was wrong that's why Herodias is so upset so here's a story again. we get this there's this Jewish story named Josephus. Josephus he lived in At the end of the time of Jesus, and he wrote down all kinds of stuff that went on in Jewish history in the first century. And he wrote a lot about John the Baptist, and he wrote this story as well. Well, he tells us that one day, our Herod, Herod Antipas, he's got to go visit Rome and and talk to the leaders there. Remember, these guys aren't actually in charge, They, they answer to Rome. So he's going to Rome one day, and he ends up staying with his brother Philip. In his own brother's household, while, you know, enjoying the blessing of his brother's hospitality, he falls for his brother's wife, um, Herodias. So kind of under his brother's roof, he secretly proposes um, to his own brother's wife, and she says, yes, I'll do it, but only if you divorce your current wife. (laughs) So Herod was already married, and it turns out that he was married to the daughter of a king of a neighboring nation called Nabatea. Right? And that would super come back bite Herod in a few years. Because the king of that, his daughter has been divorced, he's mad, he comes in, and he has a battle with Herod and just kind of wipes him out. Herod's going to pay heavily for what happens in this story this morning. So it's bad enough, right, Herod has divorced his own wife, he has stolen his brother's wife and married her, but... As it turns out, with all these kind of weird family relationships and kind of how they did things back then, it turns out that Herodias was technically Herod's niece, all right? Not good. So the marriage is adulterous and it is incestuous at the same time, and John just is not going to have anything to do with that. Right, so he calls a spade a spade. He says, it is wrong what you're doing. He is out there preaching to the public about the ruler of his area and how the sin that he has done committed in marrying this woman. So Herodias obviously gets tired of hearing about how terrible she is and how wrong her marriage is. She, she just hates John. She wants John dead. But she can't quite figure it yet how. But, so she manages to at least convince her husband to arrest him and imprison him. And in fact, they think they've found the dungeon where John was imprisoned. It's this kind of big, very cool little fortress area overlooking the Dead Sea. They've got kind of the dungeons down there where they think he would sit and and as we'll see, Herod would come and and talk with him. So they they, they found this area, they think. But we see there in verse 20 something interesting that Herod um, is fascinated by John the Baptist. He fears him because he knows he's better than him. He knows he's a good and righteous man. And he apparently loved to sit down in the dungeon and listen and talk with John and hear him Teach and hear what he had to say. Though he didn't completely understand what he was listening to, he liked something about it. He was was drawn to this man, he was drawn to this message. But unfortunately for John, then Herod's birthday rolls around. It is interesting in the Bible that birthdays are only mentioned two two times in the whole thing. Here and in Genesis 40, at Pharaoh's birthday. And at both birthday parties, someone is murdered. So I don't know what the correlation is between birthdays and murder, but that's what seems to happen in the Bible. So Herod has this party, and he just they big throw down. Right? When these leaders have parties, they, they do it right. And they wouldn't have the pay in the cardboard box. That was against their law. Maybe they'd have the cow in the cardboard box or something like that. That's something really good. They had a big feast, and the wine is definitely. Flowing freely. Alright, this is a men only party, and they're in having a good time, and they're all drunk. And then, strangely enough, we see that Herod's own stepdaughter comes in. His, his niece now, since is his brother's daughter, but then also now, who is his great niece because it is his niece's <laughs> daughter. Whatever the relationship is, it's really weird. And she comes in to this party, and we don't need to go into detail about what kind of dance this would have been. This is twisted and disturbing stuff that is going on. But we see that Herod is so pleased with the dance that he offers this girl anything that she wants.
1: And again, from those same accounts
0: from Josephus, we learn that this girl, his stepdaughter's name is Salome. Right, Salome. And she, she kind of gets famous There's all these stories about her now. Um, she kind of just has become a famous kind of character in history. So Salome comes in. She does this dance. Here it says, I'll give you anything that you want. Up to half, my kingdom." Which, by the way, he couldn't actually offer. Him, right? he, he's just being, he's exaggerating. He, he has no control whatsoever over this kingdom. It's not his. Rome's in charge. He, he could not give her this. I mean, he's just so caught up. He's drunk. He's, I'll give you whatever you want. So she goes out to her mother and she says, hey, you know, what, what should I do? And her mom, just without hesitation, she responds, I want the head of John the Baptist on the platform. She could have had anything. She could have great riches, whatever she wants. And she wants the man that has been speaking out against her dead. So Salome goes back in. She, she tells Herod, and you see that Herod is deeply sad because he really, he, he was attracted to John. He liked something about John. He wanted to know what he had to say. and was drawn to him. But Herod was also a coward, right? Not wanting to look back in front of his friends, not wanting to go back on his own. He gives the order, and without a word mentioned from John, he is the head. The head is given to Salome, who then goes and presents the head to her mother, who has now finally gotten the one thing that she wanted. It looks like they have triumphed. But again, as we said, things are about to start going terribly wrong for Herod and Herodias. This this other guy comes in and wipes out his army. He loses. Herodias then convinces Herod that he should go to Rome and convince the emperor that he should be able to be king, and be called king. So he struts into Rome like, all right, I deserve to be king. I want you to declare me king. And the emperor laughs at him and then exiles him to France and says, you're not allowed to go back. And Herod dies in exile in a foreign country on the other side of the world. Things don't go well for him, even though it seems that, that they haven't won here. So that's the, the second interrupting story. His, his apostles, his disciples, Johns, they come back, they bury his body. And then Mark kind of jumps back and finishes the first story with that one sentence statement. That kind of the apostles then come back to Jesus and report everything that they had done. Alright, so those are the two stories that seem to have nothing whatsoever to do with each other, that Mark ties closely together. Seems a bit strange, doesn't it? It's a story about the responsibility of Jesus' followers to to be on mission and to take the gospel into the world, and then a story about adultery and incest and murder. What what in the world? How do these two things go together? But as we've seen time and time again, Mark is just a masterful writer. He knows exactly what he was doing in linking these two stories. So the review of John's murder inserted into the middle of the account of the disciples tells us that these two stories interpret each other, right? John's death foreshadows the suffering that is going to come to God's messengers. What happens to John will soon happen to Jesus and to the disciples in their mission as well. So there are two primary things that I want us to draw from these two stories, maybe one. First, I want us to see the universal call to mission. Right? When God calls you, He also every time commissions you. When God saves you, He always sends you. Right? This is not some optional thing that is reserved just for kind of the super professional Christians, Right, like the pastors and, and the missionaries. This is a required, basic, fundamental thing to the Christian life. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. It means to be sent. Right? It means to be on mission for God when He calls us. You're either actively engaged in the mission of God in some way, or you are in great need of being reached by someone who is actually on mission for God, and you don't even know him. There is not some neutral, middle ground of, oh, you know, I saved, and no, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. Right? It is mission. We are called to be on mission, which is just quite simply. If you're going to break it down. It is the Proclamation of the gospel. Right, that's that's the mission of God. It is the pursuit and the salvation of sinners, bringing every tribe and tongue and nation back to Him. I remember our evangelism verse from a couple of weeks ago in, in Mark five nineteen. Jesus said to the to the man he has he has cast out all these demons. and Jesus sends him and says, "Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had great mercy on." That's being on mission, mission. Right? What I want to do is kind of break down this idea that missionaries and pastors are on a mission and they do all the work and the rest of the people will just kind of, they come to church once a week and, and sit back. No, mission is something that we're all called to be engaged in in some way or another. Right? That doesn't mean you, you know, move to the other side of the world. That doesn't mean you put your job and become a professional um, ministry person. It, it just means that you are called in your spirit, sphere spirit, spirit of life, wherever God has you, you are called to be on mission. You are called to be sharing the gospel and loving people and serving people and ministering to people in some way. right? When God saves us, He always sends us out into the world. Right? Have you been saved? What are you doing on mission for God? Do your, do your friends, have you shared the gospel with them? Do they even know that you are a Christian? What are you doing to be on mission? Because this is not some secondary optional thing. Jesus has called us, all of us, to go and make disciples. Right? This is a command he gives to the whole church, all Christians. What are you doing to help and make disciples? How are you responding to this universal call to mission? So that's the call. But I want to briefly real quick, talk about then the universal cost of mission. Right? There is no call. Without a subsequent cost. Salvation is God's It is something that He does. It is a free gift that He gives us through Jesus Christ. We cannot earn it. But it is a free gift that costs us everything. Following Jesus Christ is costly. And this, if you remember, this is the second time this has already come up in these first six chapters. And it's going to come up again in two more chapters in chapter 8. And then the entire end of the book is about the, the cost of discipleship. Because this is such a key, important theme in the book of Mark. We cannot ignore this. Though we kind of more western, comfortable Christians love to kind of skip over this cost of discipleship. No one preaches about the cost of following Jesus Christ. Joel Osteen never once has mentioned the cost of following Jesus You know, it's just all this, your your best life now. Follow Jesus and everything will go perfectly for you. You'll be rich and you'll have all this money and everything will go well. That doesn't seem to be what we find here in Scripture. Right? That's just not biblical. And in fact, if you just read the text and you read about the apostles and Paul, it just seems that sometimes when you choose to follow Jesus, sometimes things just go worse for you from a worldly perspective. Because choosing to side with Jesus in this sinful, fallen world is dangerous. People don't like to be confronted with their sin. People don't like to be told that they're wrong. People don't like to be told that homosexuality is wrong or that killing babies in the womb is wrong. People don't like to be told that there is such a place as hell and that they cannot be good enough to avoid it on their own. People don't like the exclusive claims of the New Testament, like Acts four twelve, That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you say things like this, out of this world, you're not going to be a very popular person. So as a church, as Jesus' followers, we've got to stop trying to be the coolest kids in school. And just hoping that everyone will will just like us, Christians. Because that doesn't seem to be the case listen to Jesus' words in John 15, 18 20. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated you, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12-14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, as if something strange were happening. But rejoice in serwar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is for you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. Right? notice what he says. He says not if it comes. He says but when it comes. Suffering, persecution, trials, cost, death—all of these things in the New Testament are spoken of as normal things to be expected for the follower of Jesus. These are these are things that, for to some degree, should characterize the Christian life. Because we're supposed to be out there proclaiming a message that the world. Hates. The Bible never once promises us the things we need. It never promises us comfort and riches and security in this life. And preachers who, who promise you such things on the TV are straight up lying to you. And they are getting extremely wealthy off of it in the process. Because there is a great cost to discipleship. It may cost you your actual life. Because it did for the apostles. But even if it doesn't, it should still cost you your life. Because this following Jesus thing is supposed to be the defining thing about us. This is supposed to be the thing that characterizes our lives. Our absolute and total abandon and surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord. And our obedience and desire to follow Him. Because of just the immeasurable love and mercy that He has poured out on us. He gave His life to save your life. But then He turns right around and demands it right back from you. He gave you His life so that you could give your life for others. Right? Are you following Jesus in this area? Are you pouring out your life for the benefit of other people? Have you ever experienced any sort of persecution or suffering, no matter how small that may be? The death of John the Baptist here so clearly linked to the mission of the Twelve makes it clear that there is great cost that comes with this great call. Jesus never tells us to just believe some things about it. He never tells us just to pray some prayer and then go on our way and do whatever we want. He tells us up front to count the cost. You don't ever hear a pastor in an evangelistic sermon be like, oh, by the way, before you pray this prayer, I want you to make sure you know what you're doing. I want you to count the cost. But that's exactly what Jesus says. He said, you got to make sure you know that it's worth it before you get into this. Because the cost is great. Because He demands that we lay down our lives and then we take up our cross. We saw that the apostles followed their master on mission by doing the things that He did. Preaching, casting out demons, and healing. But they also followed their master in giving up their lives, every one of them except for John, to be brutally murdered, for their message and their mission for, for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ are we at least willing and open to doing the same thing there's great cost that comes with the great call there's this there's a story in church history uh, one of my favorite characters this is over 1600 years ago around the year 400 it's so about 370 years after Jesus There's this man who is generally agreed um, upon by everyone. He was one of the greatest preachers to ever live. His name was John Chrysostom. His first name was John. But he ended up being such a great preacher that he ended up nicknaming him Chrysostom, which translated means golden mouth or or golden tongue. He was so good. They said he had a golden mouth. And he was so good because he supposedly had the entire Bible memorized. Right. He lived in a cave for a while. He went off and did the, the um, hermit thing for a little bit as he was figuring things out. And he basically just memorized the entire Bible. Scripture just poured out of this man, and kind of just naturally overflowed because he knew all of it. And people just loved John Chrysostom. He was such an amazing preacher. Well, he ends up becoming later in life the bishop, right? so the head guy of um, the city of Constantinople. Right? Constantinople was in Turkey. And today it's called Istanbul, right? You know, Istanbul, not Constantinople. It's a really cheesy old song. Um, So Istanbul, (coughs) Constantinople, same place. And at this time, Rome is declining, right? Rome is just not that important at this time. Constantinople is the key city. It is the capital of the entire Roman Empire. So this guy is now the most important pastor and the most important city in the world. So this guy is, he's a big deal. He's important. But when he shows up, the problem is that he didn't quite go along with the show. and He didn't do what everyone expected him to do. I mean, he spoke out strongly against the sinful excesses in the church. Like, people were just getting wealthy off of the church. They were making all kinds of money. They lived in this kind of lavish, kind of big, massive mansion. That had all these crazy big houses and parties. And people were just getting wealthy off the gospel. But so he comes in with this big fat salary, and he just gives it all the way to the poor. He sells everything that comes in his big massive house and gives it all the way to the poor. And he's just constantly speaking out against the sin of the leaders in this city, and how what they're doing is wrong. And he just made some powerful enemies, perhaps by how forcefully he denounced sin. And the most powerful enemy that John Chrysostom made was the emperor's wife, Eudoxia. If you just search Eudoxia and Chrysostom painting, there's this awesome painting in the pulpit like calling her out and preaching her. It's just a really cool, powerful painting. But Eudoxia, she was not someone to mess around up with. Right? Um, the king, the emperor at this time, was just a weak man. And everyone knew that Eudoxia was in control. Right? She ran the empire through her husband. She was the boss. She did whatever it was that she one, two. Right, so Eudoxia was the most powerful woman in the world at this time, and she and Chrysostom did not get along because he was constantly calling her out from the pulpit. So one day, eventually, she she finally gets fed up. She goes, gets him!" She has him banished, but he was so loved in the city that the, the, the uproar was so loud, that people demanded he comes back. That she's forced to bring him right back. But Chrysostom did not learn his lesson, and he did not let up at all. So shortly after that, the feud is growing. And it's getting stronger, and then it all just comes to a head. But she just she sets them off. She, she's bold. Right? This is, again. This is the most powerful woman in the world. She's not scared of John. So she constructs this massive, big statue of herself directly across from John's church. You walk out of John Chrysostom Church and there is Eudoxia in all her glory, this big, massive statue. She's basically being deified and treated as a goddess and people are worshipping and having these big games around the statue. That's just enough for John Chrysostom. He gets up in the pulpit and he says this straight out of our story this morning. He's talking about Eudoxia. and He says, again, Herodias reigns. Again, she is troubled. She dances again. And again, she demands the head of John on a platter. Right? He knows she's coming for him And she does She hears about that sermon. She sends his men in And she, she just has him Ripped out of his own church And right? so this is an amazing scene Where John Chrysostom Little old John Chrysostom Is standing in front of The most powerful woman in the world Knowing he's facing banishment Knowing this time He's facing death And this is their exchange She, she brings the banishment And John says to her You cannot banish me For this world is my father's house Eudoxia you replied, But I will kill you. No, he says, You cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. I will take away your treasures, she said. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there as well. But I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. No, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing that you can do to harm me. Udashia took that challenge. She sends him out with her men. And she pulls the men aside and forces him out. And she says to them, walk him until he dies. And they just lead him around the desert until he dies. A slow, painful, agonizing death. And then it had his dying words, some of his, some other people were with him. There's some that his dying words were, word, glory be to God in all these are the words that came out of the lips. The final words that came from a man who had suffered greatly for the gospel. Who had been tortured and who had been um, led on a long, low, uh, long, slow death march um, until he died. This was a man who understood the cost of discipleship. This was a man who was not afraid of the clear connection between mission and martyrdom. Either it, the call always came with he, he stood up to the most powerful woman in the world, and he was willing to die for his sake. This was a man who understood the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. My life is here with Christ. My treasure is in heaven. There is nothing that you can do to harm you. Have you ever counted the cost? Do you understand what it is that Christ demands from you? Let any of us be willing to do what John Chrysostom does here in this book. Or, like when I was young, younger, was this, this whole Christianity thing to me it was, just, it was just a game. It was something I just kind of played at on the side. You know, we, we come to church on Sunday mornings. We like the social part. We, we like the music. We believe that all the stories are true. But, you know, all this sacrifice and death and then suffering and trials and costs, all that stuff, ah. No, that, that stuff—that's not for me. I'll—I'll I'll leave that to the you know the professionals. I'll leave that to the super Christians. But the problem is that the Bible just never makes such a distinction. Right? We—we we tend to tend to treat like all right, the pastors are the super Christians. They're good and they're holy. They're—they're they're obviously supposed to be on mission. Oh, we're all just kind of the regular people. We don't have to do all that stuff. Listen, there's just no such distinction in the Bible. We are the priesthood of all believers. I am not the mediator between us and God. Jesus Christ is the mediator between all of us and God. I am just as much of a sinner as you guys are sinners. This, This call to mission applies to every single one of us universally. We are all called to be part of the mission of God. We are all called to be willing to lay down our lives and to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. So Mark is tying these two stories together Mission and Mark. Whenever there is a cost, call to follow, there is also a cost. And John the Baptist pays that cost. Remember, there are only two stories and the entire Gospel of Mark that are not about Jesus. Only two of them. And both of them are about John the Baptist. The first one in Mark chapter one is about how John foreshadows Jesus in his mission. He goes before him, for preaching uh, repentance and for preaching the coming of the kingdom. He is the forerunner of Jesus in his ministry. But here in our passage, in our, in our passage this morning, we see Mark's first passion area because here John is Jesus's forerunner in his death. And the parallel between the death of the two just cannot be missed. In both cases, you have a ruler, Herod and Pilate, who are attracted to something about this innocent, righteous man in front of them. Right? But in both cases, both of them are weak and succumb to the social pressure of, of the crowd. Right? Um, Herod is into Herodias, Pilate is into the mob, and they both have these men that they're attracted to killing. Right, Both of these men die silently as, as victims of political intrigue and corruption. Both die as righteous and innocent victims. In both cases, the followers of both men come and, and take the bodies and give them a proper burial. John goes before Jesus in martyr. Right? The death of John the prophet foreshadows what is shortly going to happen to this man Jesus, who we just saw last week has been called for the first time a prophet. Even in his death, John points forward to Jesus. Even these two stories about John aren't really about John. They're about Jesus. Because Jesus is the point, and John is not. But, that's not all. Don't forget the first story. Mark ties them together. By surrounding the story of John with the story of the mission, he's making it clear that John's Death also exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in this world. A world that values greed and power and wealth. And a, a world that very much does not value the things of God. So there will be persecution. There is a great cost to following Jesus Christ. But that cost is so worth it because of what John's death points us to: the coming death of Jesus Christ. John death, it points us forward to the event around which our entire faith revolves. The cross of Jesus Christ. It is the death of Jesus that makes Him so worth following. It is the death of Jesus that makes our lives, our potential suffering and death so barren. Why? Because it was through His death that He obtained our life. Through His death, He attains for us life. And that's the gospel. It is the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place, in the place of sin. He dies so that we can live. And He offers this life to us for free. But He requires that we repent and believe and follow Him. And we often leave that third part out. Of we often forget the following, but it's just not optional. We are called to follow Jesus Christ and that call is possible. It, it demands from us all of us. Have you laid down your life And have you taken up your cross Have you responded to the call And have you counted the cross Are we as a church together Following Jesus Christ Let's, let's close it Father we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us Even stories like these So that you can reveal to us things That, that we can you know even through um, The great sin of people like Herod, and Herod So Father right now I pray that you would show us um, the, the cost. Father, you, you would much more importantly show us how worth it is. Father, show us the glory of Jesus Christ. Show us the glory of following Him and, and what we gain from Him, which is life eternally um, in relationship with You. Father, we thank you for giving us forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for sending us a substitute to stand in our place um, when we were your enemies. Father, I pray that we would understand the cost but we would understand the worth of Father, just show us how great Jesus is uh, through these stories. Uh, point us forward through the death of John to the coming death of Jesus Christ, to which this whole book is pivotal. Father, I pray that his death in our place would shape for everything that we do in this place. But Father, we would be so motivated by the call, by the blessing it is to be able to go forth, that we would leave this place and proclaim more good news to the neighborhood around us and to this great city. Father, we pray that you would work, that you would apply these truths to our heart. You would remind us of these truths as we go through our weeks. Father. We just thank you for your work We thank you for Jesus Christ. And so in his name, we pray.